Good morning. My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to bring the Word of Christ, and it's a joy to sit underneath the Word of Christ along with you as well. Today is a special day for us. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Mark. So if you would go ahead and turn there as we get going and launching out. Uh, I was particularly struck this week in my study as I was reading uh, R.C. Sproul's introduction to his commentary, a sermon series that I would highly recommend to you. I was, I was struck by his introduction, and I would like to read that to us, read that for us this morning, share that. It's a little lengthy, uh, but I think it captures well uh, what Mark is doing and how he's setting up this letter for us, how the Holy Spirit would be leading us here. Imagine for a moment that you are a Christian in first century Rome. You are assembled with your congregation on the Lord's Day, but not in a church. The persecutions of the Emperor Nero are raging, and if the authorities discover that you are a believer, you will be arrested and subjected to the death penalty. So you and your fellow believers are gathered underneath the city, in the catacombs, surrounded by skeletons and cadavers. In the year 64, a great fire devastated Rome. Ultimately, it destroyed nearly 80% of the city. Now, when things like this happen, everyone looks for someone to blame. Many suspected Nero himself had set the fire. To deflect suspicion, Nero chose to blame it on Christians. Word swept through the city that the destruction had been caused by those anti-social, anti-religious fanatics who bore the name of Jesus Christ. So Nero sent his military out to round up every Christian he could find. When he arrested the Christians, he clothed them in the skins of wild animals. And then in a public display of cruelty, he set wild dogs loose on them. Thinking they were assaulting wild animals, the dogs attacked the Christians garbed in skins and killed them. Other Christians, Nero dipped in pitch or tar and ignited their bodies, using them to illuminate his private gardens. If that was not enough, other Christians were brought into the Colosseum and fed to the lions for entertainment. In all probability, it was around the year 65 in the immediate aftermath of the Great Fire that the first written record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ appeared, the gospel according to Mark. Imagine yourself in the catacombs worshiping with the little band of believers. On this Lord's Day, however, the pastor of your congregation comes with a new document. It is the newly written gospel of Mark. You are about to hear the word of God in the first reading of the gospel. We are not too different from those Christians. We exist in a different context. We have different types of trials, different degrees of trials. But we have our trials. We have our tribulations. We have our sufferings. We have our oppression. We, of course, have the same ultimate enemy, not Nero, but Satan. And what they needed to hear and what we need to hear this morning, 
now and through this series and Mark and forever, we need to hear and see and behold Jesus Christ. And what those Christians need in that context was a fresh encounter with the living God through the revelation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the same letter that was written to them in their context by the Holy Spirit is the same letter that is written to us in our context. I don't know what you personally are going through. It's been a tough year and our trials are many and they're varied. But what I do know and what the Bible presents to us is that we need a fresh encounter of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of Mark presents that to us. With the hope that we would respond in faith. That we would believe in it. That we would be transformed by it. That peace would come into our hearts. That truth would come into our hearts. In this age of skepticism and postmodernism that would deconstruct everything, every category that would exist in the world, we need a truth that we can hold on to. In this world that is all about the self that leads us down this self-destructive pattern of self-glory where there is no objective truth. That's an abyss of destruction. We need this gospel to land as true in our hearts. Something that we can hold on to. So the prayer this morning, the hope is that whatever we're going through, that today and through this series, we would encounter Jesus on the Bible's terms, and respond in faith. It would lead us to a life of worship and eternal joy and hope and peace in this current context of trial and tribulation. Let's pray for the Lord's help. Father, we thank you for your word. God, as we even imagine being those Christians in the first century, God, who had never had your word written down. And what a joy and honor and privilege to have your word written down so that it can be read and heard and reread and reheard. God, don't let us take for granted your word. And it is living and it is active this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we submit ourselves before you, God, and we just humbly ask you, God, to speak, to work, to argue your truth deep into our hearts, that you would cause faith to arise in our hearts, to see and behold Jesus as true. Not a pipe dream, not a wish dream, not a fantasy, but as truth. Would you do that now? Transform us all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to see six truths. As we go through these first eight verses of Mark, six truths about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the good news for all the world. He is the good news. Verse 1 of Mark's 
letter, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is a rightful period that is deserving exactly right there. There is no punctuation in the Greek, which is interesting, but it deserves to be there in our English because this first verse is basically Mark's thesis for his entire letter. This is what Mark is doing. He is presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, we might ask, who is Mark? Mark was the son of a Christian mother. He's cousin to Barnabas. He became a missionary and worker with the Apostle Paul. Mark was very well acquainted with his own weakness. Mark abandoned Paul at one point, um, caused a lot of friction between Paul and Barnabas. Later, we do learn that Paul affirms Mark, says that Mark was very useful to him in ministry. Mark, in those later years, he also becomes very close to the Apostle Paul. I'm I'm sorry, Apostle Peter. Uh, So much so that Peter would even call Mark his son. It's a very close relationship between Mark and Peter. So much so that based on the evidence of this book and scholars, what they do in their research, uh, the general evidence would point us to believe that, that Peter is actually behind this letter. Peter is, is, it is Peter's account through the voice in the hand of Mark. So Mark is writing for Peter. That is, uh, some of the evidence to verify that would simply be that uh, not only the close nature between Mark and Peter, but this entire letter, as we're going to see, has a very Peter lens to it. It's, it, it is told as if Peter is the only one that knows what's happening. There's a lot of personal, intimate knowledge about the life of Peter. Also, Peter is the apostolic authority and who would have had the apostolic experience of this material and could have signed off on it to uh, affirm that it is indeed the truth. So, We believe that Peter is the one behind it, but it is Mark who's writing it down, and it's coming a little bit through Mark. Exactly how much of Mark's personality and all that is in there, we don't exactly know. But what Mark is trying to do with this information from Peter is Mark is sharing with us the good news, the gospel. It's right front and center. He's got good news. He is writing because he's got good news to share. Good news, gospel, that's what that means. It's like a, it's, it's an announcement of news. It's historical news that changes things. It changes your life. It is, it is no different than a, uh, something going across the news ticker on the screen. Here is what happened. Something happened. It's not something, it's someone. Someone has happened. Mark is very clear. The good news is Jesus. It's not something he necessarily did or taught. It is him. Good news of a person. This person has three names here that Mark gives us. He gives us the name Jesus. Jesus is the human name given to this special individual. It's the name that the angels gave right to Mary and Joseph before he was born. It's his human name. He's also named here Christ, the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, as sometimes commonly thought. No, it is not his last name. It is a title. It is his title. It is his office, what he is fulfilling. 
It's no different than Matthew Pastor or Aaron Artist or Joe Plummer, right? This is Jesus. It is what he is fulfilling. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, the Hebrew word Messiah. So Messiah and Christ are the exact same word translated in two different contexts. Both of them mean anointed. Anointed. The anointed one is who this Jesus is. He's the anointed one to execute the special office of being the Messiah. He is God's king. He is the people's king. And he alone is anointed to carry out that office. We also see thirdly that he is the son of God. There's no mistaking Jesus's identity here. And Mark does not want us to be confused. He is the son of God. Uniquely in his nature, God. And uniquely in his nature, relationally connected to God. Never born, he's eternally the son, but in relationship to the eternal father, he is son. Eternal son in nature. So, summarizing that, Mark is saying there is good news about this human and divine Jesus. It all centers on this person. How does he want to share that with us? That's what this letter is going to do. How is, how is Mark going to share the good news of this person? Well, it's not through the form of a lecture. It's not how Mark is choosing to do this. It's in the form of a story. It's historical narrative, true historical narrative with a theological message. It's the way God works. He can provide a message through history through his son, and that's exactly what God is doing through this letter. Mark is a fast-paced, action-packed account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. There's no birth story, there's no genealogy, there's very little discourse. Half of it is all about the cross. It's been said before that basically Mark's letter is about the cross with an extended introduction. The word immediately occurs over 40 times in Mark's letter. So don't be thinking boring lecture here. You need to be thinking something more like a born ultimatum movie. It's always shifting and, and changing. It's super engaging. This is an in-your-face approach. Not telling you what you should believe. It's inviting you into an experience. To experience and to behold Jesus yourself as if you were there as the original audience. He's, Mark is inviting us into this story. And we, tar, we are to experience the facts as he lays them out and then we are to respond. And he largely leaves it open. How are we going to respond that Jesus is the Messiah? Not as legend, not as fantasy, not as a faith projection, but as reality. Mark is driving us towards this confession through his book. It's stated squarely in the middle of the book in Mark 8, where Jesus turns and he says to Peter, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you confess, based upon what you are seeing, that I am Lord and Savior, the Christ? 
We're going to see that the crowds and the disciples, they're fumbling their way through this gospel, this letter. They're not getting it. Hardly anybody does get it. The demons in chapter 3, they get it. Maybe Peter gets it right there in chapter 8, but you know what happens four verses later? Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So Peter might have had an affirmation that some idea that he was the Messiah, but he had no idea that the Messiah had to suffer. Not that type of Messiah. It might be that the only authentic, genuine response we see is at the very back end, on the backside of the cross, a Roman soldier of all people who is standing there watching and listening to Jesus cry and scream in his last moments. Give up his last breath. And he stands there and he says, surely you must be the son of God. It's the confession that Mark is driving us to. It's clear that he's not giving us a bunch of information to just know. Like Jesus is just teaching us something. Or to give us a new code of conduct to follow. Or to, or to see Jesus as a good example. No, Jesus, he might be those things. But he is the good news. The good news is not outside of him. That's our posture as we go through this book. We are, we are looking at good news. And Jesus is it. Jesus, the historical revelation of his life, death, and resurrection is our good news in the gospel. And then Mark jumps straight into the action here. The second truth we see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of Scripture going to go through these next points a little bit quicker verse 2 as it is written in Isaiah the prophet behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight here Mark takes the liberty to combine a few quotes from the Old Testament he lumps them under the name Isaiah which was very customary in in that day and time and he's saying here is what is happening the time is now. Scripture is being fulfilled. Right? The point is not, is not just that Jesus is, or it's not just that God is fulfilling Scripture. The point is that it's, it's happening, like now, urgently. Of course God is faithful to Scripture. But Mark is launching us into this narrative because it's urgent. He's trying to get everybody's attention. The time is now. The Messiah is here. Right? There's been 400 years of silence. Not a word to the people of God from a prophet. But God had prophesied through the person of John, chosen to be the, the last prophet, to usher in the coming of this Messiah. And Mark's making it very clear right here. The focus is not John. The focus is because John's here, that means Jesus is near. So listen up. So pay attention. John is preparing the way for this Messiah, the one that we've been looking for since Genesis 3.15 to usher us back into the garden of God's presence. He is here in the person of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all Scripture. Next we see the third truth. Jesus forgives sinners. Verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. While baptism was common in that day, John is giving baptism a new meaning. He is locating baptism on a returning to God, on repentance. For him, baptism means a returning to God, a turning around. It's a reorienting of your life. It's acknowledging that you were heading down one way, worshiping one God, and you're turning around to worship the one true living God. It's a return. It's a return to God. A faith-driven return, not a fear-driven. The faith is there to confess sins, not out of fear of judgment, but out of faith, in faith of forgiveness. That's why they're coming and they're confessing their sins because here is hope. Here is hope. I can turn around to this God because this God is a forgiving God. The good news is that Jesus forgives sinners. He forgives sinners. That's worth going out into the wilderness for. He forgives sinners. Next, we see that Jesus is more valuable than the world. Verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. It's an interesting insertion here about John's clothing and just kind of his makeup. A lot of this probably ties him to the prophets. He was, this is what a prophet would have been kind of considered to look like, to be like. There's, there's language of Elijah in the Old Testament that is very similar to this. Like he is fulfilling scripture in some sense in the way that he is dressing. But true prophets, they not only speak the word of God, they live the word of God. They value God above all else. They value obedience to God above all else. And that is what John is a picture of here. For John, obedience obedience to Jesus is far more precious than living in a luxurious home, having shelter over his head, having nice clothes on him, drinking Starbucks lattes and enjoying steaks and salads. For John... Jesus was far, I mean, far more important, far more valuable, not even in question, right? We learn from other texts that he gave up alcohol. He considered a life of sobriety, not burdensome, but because Jesus was more valuable. We would do well to listen to this, to see his example here. It's not that we got to do things exactly the way that John did it. He was chosen and called for this specific route or the specific manner. But we must have the same heart. We must value Jesus above all things, right? Jesus would even say, you know, why gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? What's more valuable, the world or your soul? Well, your soul is far more valuable because it lives on in eternity. It's going to live on eternity with Jesus the prize of the universe. So the things of this world, they're not intrinsically evil, but we are called to live in John's manner to value Jesus over the world. Next we see the fifth truth. Jesus is to be humbly worshipped. Verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, 
the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John was very clear in his ministry. His ministry was not about him at all. No self-glory. His ministry was about the one who was to come after him. All glory is pointed to the Messiah who is coming. John, by faith, had seen the glory and the grace of God. And it had a profound effect on him. The one, he says, who is coming after me is mightier than I. Mightier than I. He says, I am unworthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. In that culture, you're wearing sandals on dirt roads. Your feet get very dirty. And it was considered by many to be too low or too dirty. It's an unclean thing, a dishonoring thing to untie your own shoes because you'll get your hands dirty. So what did they do? They had slaves that would do that. I'm not going to touch my feet, but slaves should. So there was a job of a slave, the very ordinary, menial task of a slave. And John says, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to do that. The lowest of things, the lowest of things with you, Lord Jesus, to untie your shoes in the position of a slave, I'm not worthy of that. There's worship and there's humility going on with John. It's humble worship. It's the humility that would recognize we are not worthy. And it's the worship that would recognize Jesus is. But John also experienced grace and he was brought in. He's brought in. Yes, he's unworthy to untie, but because of Jesus, he's, he, he's welcomed into that. Not only would John, John wouldn't just not, not, or he wouldn't just untie, not untie Jesus' sandals, but he would actually baptize Jesus. We're going to see that next week. Jesus welcomes John in. For us today, Jesus welcomes all of us in. All of us sinners outcasts, unwanted, forgotten, low, broken people. Unworthy. Unworthy for Jesus to even look on us. Who are we that God would look on us? And yet Jesus does. He does because his heart is full of love. And it is full of grace. He's not ignoring our sin. He's seeing us right in our sin, and he's loving us in the middle of it. And he says to us today, I love you. Be welcomed in. Not as a slave. He's not welcoming us in as slaves. He's welcoming us into his family. As his brothers and as his sisters, 
and as sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's what Jesus is doing today, church, an unbeliever. This is what he holds out to you, and we worship him. This is why believers worship Jesus. He welcomes us in. What grace, what glory, what honor. Who is like him? There's not a God like him. We read that earlier. Amen. Co-labors and co-heirs of Christ. We get to rule with him. What privilege, what honor he gives us. Not because of our merit or what we do, but because of his. Lastly, sixth truth, Jesus gives sinners new hearts. Verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was symbolic. John was a limited person. He had limited power. His baptism was symbolic of a cleansing of the heart. It was a cleansing that was happening, and there was faith designed to be attached to that act. And while there could be forgiveness, John was powerless to renew hearts, powerless to give new hearts. You're just going to sin again. You're going to walk right away from this baptism and be clean, but you'll sin again and be dirty. Only Jesus has that power. Jesus not only forgives us, but he gives us new hearts. He cleanses us from the inside out. Hearts that are filled with the Holy Spirit. The day signified by Pentecost when the Spirit's poured out on all without measure. This is not talking about a secondary experience of the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the primary experience of the Holy Spirit for all who believe in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This is what happens when you place your faith in Jesus. You are born again. You're born again. In every sense of that word, spiritually. The old is gone. The new has come. We are no longer defined by our depravity. And we are forever defined by, defined by the righteousness of Christ. We get new hearts in the gospel. And they forever beat for the king. We don't have to worry about them ever worshiping something else. That's called the flesh that we still struggle and suffer with today in this world. But one day, once we get to glory, that old person will be gone forever. And it will be nothing but redeemed, glorified bodies for us. May God bring that day sooner than later. This is all good news, church. Mark's letter about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God is good news for sinners and for the ent entire world. Would, hit, would the truth, would the true historical revelation of Jesus meet you today in your struggle, in your fears, and in your doubts? In your sin and in your shame, may Jesus meet you today. 
in this day of speculation and skepticism. May the truth of Jesus be an anchor for your soul. May hope be planted in your heart, a wellspring of life. May peace override and overrule every anxiety. May comfort override every fear. And may the glory of Jesus eclipse all the suffering and trials and tribulations we may face in this life. He is worthy of our worship now and forevermore. May God do that in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, your son. Thank you for a life lived, a death died, and a resurrection that all took place because of a great love that he had and you had for us. We thank you now, God, that you are alive. Jesus is alive. He's reigning. He's ruling. And one day he's going to come back with his glorious kingdom. Lord Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. You are the doorway into life eternal. You are everything to us, God. We love you. We testify of your goodness now and we proclaim your goodness to this world as we wait eagerly for your second coming. In your name we pray, amen.